Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for the privilege of assembling together in your name, investigating your word, and Lord, we ask that you would superintend each part of the service, that you may be honored and glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you need an outline, wave your hand there. I don't know who has them. Uh, I think... Um, don't think they got passed out at all. Okay. They are on the copy machine. So we will get them and pass them out. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And let's just pick up a little context here. Uh, What is going on is Jesus has been in Jerusalem for uh, the Feast of Dedication. That would have been the celebration that we today would call Hanukkah. He had left the city of Jerusalem and was going uh, around the uh, area there where John had originally started baptizing. That, That would be called Perea with a P. And Jesus was teaching. He was eating at the Pharisees' home. They were always lying in wait, trying to catch him, trying to uh, uh, somehow accuse him. And uh, we ended last week going over very quickly these little uh, short parables here at the end of chapter 14 on the cost of discipleship. He said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. If you're going to follow Jesus. Now, there's an awful lot that goes on in the name of Jesus that costs nothing. In fact, if you want to know the premise, the true premise of the entire purpose-driven Christianity, it is a Christianity that serves you. You turn on TBN, your relationship with God, according to Benny Hinn, it's dependent upon how big your bank account is and and how much you have and all of these things. That type of Christianity is not in the Bible. The type of Christianity is in the Bible says you're going to have to give up some things. But I'll tell you what, I've never given anything to God that he has not given back a hundredfold. Now, the world doesn't look at it that way. But I think of, uh, oh, who do I think of? A dozen names comes into my mind of people. Uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was um, Getty, the oil, the gasoline guy, said, I'd give everything I had for one good marriage. He had seven or eight bad ones he ought to know. Uh, uh, You know, it was Queen Victoria that died gasping for her last breath, saying, my kingdom for another moment of life. I'll tell you what. I'd rather serve Jesus. I'd rather serve Jesus. But he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to give up. 
your family. Now, in giving up your family, it's not talking about ignoring, even though the word is used here, the word hate is used here. I think we went over this very quickly last week, and time will not allow us to do, spend much more time this week. But the idea that I believe is expressed here is everyone, as a human being, we love with expectations, do we not? We want people to do things for us. We love people, but when we love and we give of ourselves to people, do we not as human beings, expect something in return. Hello? Go like this. Because you do. And that's what Jesus is saying we got to get rid of. How many people give their lives, the key is, and his own life also, how do I hate my own life? It's not getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. You have to pay your psychiatrist several hundred dollars an hour to get any kind of satisfaction out of that foolishness there. Uh, what it is talking about is a life without expectations. I do not give my life to God so I can get something back. I give my life to God because he is God. And he will do a whole lot better with your life than you can. You just can't help but do better giving it to God. Amen? But it is going to cost you something if your relationship with Christ has not cost you something. It's either because you're not doing anything or... It's because you don't have a relationship with Christ. We're supposed to do something with our relationship with God. And he uses these parables. If you've got a, a king coming against you here, it says, verse 31, What king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth, whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else why the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple... You got to give it all up. Does this sound very familiar to what happened when the rich young ruler came to Jesus? Yeah. How do you get saved? If you're here today and you're truly saved, you're born again the Bible way. I think I've told this story before. I met a guy one time. He says, well, I was swimming in Tampa Bay in Florida, and I almost drowned, and I got saved. That's how I know that I'm saved. I said, well, you were rescued from death. But the Bible, when it uses that word, is talking about being saved from the wrath of God. He says, oh, no, 
I don't have to worry about God anymore. I was saved in Florida. I said, that's not Bible salvation. I couldn't convince him that there was a difference. Bible salvation is when you give it all up. You surrender to Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the Bible word that's living the Bible word repentance. Now, nobody can be perfect. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is a decision that is made to surrender everything to Jesus. That's how you get saved. By the way, that's how you live for him. And when we get past that sacrifice, that giving up of everything, when we get to a point in our Christianity where we start thinking there's, there's got to be a little bit in here for me somewhere, we're missing the spirit of Christianity, of our true relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And then, as Jesus here is in the house of the Pharisees and speaking to the Pharisees here, and the primary reason he is saying this is because these people were not going to give up their position. They were not going to give up their religion. They were not going to give up all of the good things that they had done, and Jesus was trying to plead with them for their souls. Now his teaching is going to take a turn, an abrupt turn. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Now, you got to get the picture here. Where is Jesus? He's sitting down to dinner in one of the chief Pharisees' homes. And he has just gotten done rebuking them and pleading with them for their souls. And as Jesus is teaching, all of the bad people in town, publicans, they had sold out to Rome. They were collecting, collecting taxes for Rome. Sinners were Jewish people who had given up living according to the Scriptures. They were known. Uh, if they were alive today, we would call them the now and present crowd, the nightclub crowd, uh, the people who live for self. I think we have uh, hippies and then they became yuppies. And, and uh, I mean, we got all kinds of names for people who live for themselves. That was who was crowding in at the door of the Pharisee's house. And guess what Jesus does? He gets up from the table with the Pharisees and all the religious people and goes out there and talks to the sinners. Now, we have a group of preachers today who say, you see, Jesus spent time with the publicans and sinners. So what do these preachers do? They dress like publicans and sinners. I mean, they need to have at least one tattoo somewhere in a prominent place and shorts and whatever. Uh, I remember one guy, he says, well, 
We just believe that Jesus has given us freedom. And I was going, if I had freedom, I wouldn't dress that dumb if you paid me to. Why would you wear an Hawaiian shirt and shorts to church? I mean, one of those things with the big palm trees all over it. I mean, I'm sorry. I I think there's something wrong with somebody that puts that on. Especially when they want to say they're worshiping God. I mean, I would question it on Monday afternoon. Uh, Now, if you're changing oil in the car, maybe. Uh, But people do all kinds of things. Jesus did not justify the sinners, my friend, until they gave up all and came to him. You see, Jesus didn't lower the standard. It's just that some people have less to give up, or how shall we say it, it's a little easier to give up certain things and find Jesus You see, it's easier to give up sin because you know how much pain and suffering you have than it is to give up a religion where you're working your way to God. Are we all together? So Jesus is still talking about the cost of discipleship. But the crowd that he is now addressing, they don't have the hang-ups that was inside the house. They're willing to give up what they have because they know it doesn't work. And so the first story that Jesus tells, we, we say chapter 15 of the book of Luke is the lost parables. Not meaning that they've been lost, but they're about lost things. And the first parable here, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Now here was Jesus' story. Remember, scribes and Pharisees, they're here. Sinners and publicans, they're here. And Jesus says, Which of you... If you had a hundred sheep and you lost one. Now, you know what we would do in the West if we had a hundred sheep and we lost one? Well, that's the cost of doing business. It's just a one percent loss. Poor little sheep. Probably some wolf's dinner. And if he isn't, he will be before morning. Tough luck, little sheep. I'm going to take care of the 99, and I'm going home. Aren't you glad God is not a Western businessman? He, was, he is an Eastern shepherd. He leaves the 99 where they are, 
because they're safe as long as they're together. And he goes and he finds that little lost sheep. I I want you to understand something. This was the common practice, the natural approach that the average person would have in this situation because they cared about the sheep. They say the shepherd would know his sheep by name, that they would put maybe five or six hundred sheep in a fold overnight to protect them from the predators, and the shepherd would be able, while it was still dark, to call and to actually feel the sheep's face and know which ones were his and which ones were someone else's. Now, I'll tell you what. That's an amazing amount of care that is foreign to our thinking and our understanding of taking care of the sheep. You see, Jesus had a point to make here. Verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Uh, By the way, is there such a thing as a just person who needs no repentance? No, Jesus was, again, driving the attack toward the Pharisees and the scribes. He's saying, there's more joy in heaven over this one that needs repentance. Looking at the publicans and the sinners, amen? Then over 90 and 9 that don't need repentance, back to the scribes and the Pharisees. See, when you take time to put the story in its context, how powerful this preaching would have been upon the people standing there watching these things. Amen? But Jesus isn't finished yet. He's going to go on. And it says in... uh, Verse 8, either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. Now, I've heard so many things. This was her dowry from her wedding, and this was the coins that proved her faithfulness to her husband. None of that is in the text. Let me ask you a question. If you lost a $100 bill, would you say, uh, forget about it. It'll show up someday. Now, if you're in that situation, please see me after church. We have some needs that we could use for all that extra money that you don't know what to do with. Amen? But I think if you lost a $100 bill, you'd be getting out the flashlight and the broom and you'd be looking for it until you found it. Would you not? I mean, it was a valuable, it was a silver coin. It was worth something. This was not just a tip that you would leave. This was not a quarter. 
or, or a silver dollar. This, this was a valuable piece of money. In our modern day, it would be very similar to a $100 bill. I'll bet you you'd tear the whole house up till you found it. Amen? And then look what it says here. Verse 10, Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, it's interesting the statement, the way Jesus words this. He said there is joy, where? In the presence of the angels of God. Now, we sing victory in Jesus, and I love that song, but it's not the angels that are singing, my friend. It's people rejoicing in the presence. Now, who would be in the presence of the angels? Uh, Number one, God. He who takes time to attend each sparrow's funeral rejoices when a soul comes to salvation. Amen? And how about those who have gone on before us in Jesus Christ? Do you not think that they rejoice when another person comes to salvation? The rejoicing is in the presence of the angels because someone came and repented and Jesus here is pleading with the Pharisees I mean the publicans and the sinners to repent of their deeds and come to Jesus Christ by the way he's also pleading with the Pharisees and the scribes to repent of their religion and of their good deeds because you're not saved by what you do you're saved by what Jesus has done and to come to Jesus Now, one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, the prodigal son. Uh, Let's put this in in the context here. The context is the lost parable. It said a certain man had two sons. I want to challenge you. Both sons were lost. He's talking about lost things in these parables. The younger son, we have no problem figuring out he's lost. He goes into a far country and he spends everything he has, his inheritance, his health, everything that is his, he spends it trying to enjoy whatever the world gives you. Tell you what, sometimes Christians make a mistake. They say, Don't do that. That's sin. There's no pleasure in sin. Excuse me. There is pleasure in sin. But it's only for a season. And pleasure in sin is always connected to death. It's always connected to death. They're not out there not having fun. That's what the world does. And by the time they wake up and realize what's attached to it, it's often too late. I think of that group of teenagers a couple months ago that were 
hot rod in a stolen car and turned it over uh, just outside Youngstown, Ohio, and two of them got out, and five of them, I believe, or seven of them were drowned in the car. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. But they all went out to have a good time that night. You see, we have no problems recognizing the prodigal is lost. But I want to challenge you, the elder son was lost even though he knew where he was. You see, the prodigal squandered it. The elder son was squandering his life's effort trying to work for that which could have been, should have been by right, already his. It says, His father divided unto them his living. Right? I mean, do I need to check that? Everybody's looking at me kind of square tonight. It says, And he divided unto them his living, the end of verse 12. That meant he gave everything to the elder son, and yet the elder son complains and said, Thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Everything that he had already belonged to the elder son. But he was too busy working for it to be able to enjoy it. Who was Jesus speaking to again? Scribes, Pharisees, elder son. Publican sinners, prodigal son. Where was the sons found? It was when he came home to his father's house. Amen? And the elder son proved that he didn't belong there because he would not go in. They were both lost. And Jesus was saying, Scribes and Pharisees, if you'll come in, you'll have to forgive the publicans and sinners because they belong here. Because they've repented. And you need to repent too. See, there's only one way of salvation. Everybody's got to do it. Or you don't get saved. Amen? And so now we come to chapter 16 and Jesus is going to change directions again just a little bit here. And he said also unto his disciples. Now Jesus is going to focus his teaching on the disciples. But remember, the publicans and the scribes are still there. Many of the, uh, I mean, yeah, the sinners, publicans and sinners and scribes and Pharisees, they're all there. And Jesus tells the story of the unjust steward. Now, I'll tell you what, read some commentaries, if you will, on the unjust steward, and you're going to find as much difference in the answers and the explanations as you will find, uh, could possibly find on any subject. You know what that tells me? Most people don't understand what this parable is about. Now, you want to know what this parable is about? Let Jesus tell you what it's about. Let's go down to verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. 
If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? Now I've heard preachers preach that Jesus was commending the unjust steward for stealing from his master. No, that is not true. Jesus does not commend people for doing wrong. The man had squandered his master's goods. He was getting fired. When you squander something, when you just are careless and lose it, what do you have left? Nothing, right? Well, the unjust steward made something out of nothing, didn't he? He was dealing wisely with what was under his hand. His master had given him the opportunity to balance the books and then give him an accounting, and he took his... In fact, he went to the creditors and said, how much do you owe? I don't even know how much you owe. Now, that's not the steward's job. He is supposed to know everything. Right? And so the unjust steward actually makes a future for himself out of what he lost, what he squandered. He losing his position. Guess who's getting a knock on the door the next day? Uh, do you remember those uh, 20, what was it here? Um, yeah, 50 measures of oil. Do you remember those 50 measures of oil? You know, that ought to be good for six or eight months here. He had a place, he made something out of his mess. Okay, here's what we do. When we serve the Lord, do we fail? Do we? Do we squander our master's goods? And then what do we do? We throw up our hands and we say, well, there's nothing I can do. Jesus said, if you won't do something, if you won't even have a little bit of effort here with physical money, Why should I give you my blessings to squander on nothing? Hello? You have to think about this to get there because he's not commending unjust behavior. What he is condemning is this idea that I messed up and I'm just going to throw my hands up and do nothing. I know churches where pastors have done this And they just gave their buildings and properties back to the bank at nothing and closed the church down and lost everything. Let me tell you, if you won't be faithful in the little things, if you won't be careful, if you won't have a little, what do we call it? Ingenuity, a little effort put forth a little desire to invest 
Why would God give you his blessings? God does not want welfare Christians, my friend. He doesn't want you just sitting there going, well, give me the blessings. Oh, I messed up, God. I can't serve you. That's the attitude he's preaching about here. When you do nothing, you wonder why you don't have God's blessings. He wants you to do something with them. Amen? He's talking about the cost of discipleship. He's talking about serving God. And if you're not going to be faithful in little things, and we, we try to be very careful here. When somebody puts something in the offering, guess what? We're careful about where that goes. Because we want to be faithful in the little things. And God provides and has provided. Amen? And in your own personal life, if you won't be diligent in your work, don't expect God to use you as some great soul winner or some great servant of God somewhere else. If you're not faithful in the little things, by the way, when your children are born, guess what? They're little. That's when you need to be faithful. Because when they get big, it'll be, take care of itself. But if you don't take care of it when they're little, you're not going to be able to help them when they get big. There's lots and lots of applications here. But the point of the parable is you be faithful in what you have in your hand. Because the next story, I don't believe is a parable. I believe it's a story. The rich man and Lazarus, Jesus uses a name here. Why does he not name the rich man, someone said? Well, that's very simple. He chose not to, amen? Isn't that profound? I mean, I had to look long and hard to find that one. I wonder if he had used the rich man's name if some of those Pharisees and scribes that were still standing there listening would have known the family name and said, you can't talk like that about him. He was a righteous man. That's why Jesus didn't use the name. You see, he had a whole group of rich men right over here with the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe it was one of their brothers. Maybe those five brethren that he was trying to witness to from the pits of hell were standing right there next to him. We don't know, but it's possible. And when we get to the end of the story here, we have the rich man who had everything that life had to offer. We had Lazarus who needed everything that life could want. He had no health. He had no money. He had no one that cared for him. Uh, they just took him and laid him at the gate of the rich man, hoping someone would have some pity and mercy on him, and the only one that did were the dogs. It's a pretty pathetic story. But when they died, their positions changed, because even though Lazarus was a poor beggar, his faith was in the God of the Bible, and the rich man who had everything, his faith was in himself. 
And so at the end, it's amazing, this rich man is calling across from hell, saying, could I have one drop of water? And Moses says, that's not going to work. Well, at least would you send him to my brother's house because I have brethren that are there and they're headed to this same place. See, there are no atheists in hell. And if anybody is there that you know there's only one thing they want, they want you not to go there. That's what this story says. But what was the answer? It says they have Moses and the prophets. Who did the scribes and Pharisees pretend to know everything about? Moses and the prophets. What was Jesus saying? He was telling them, you say that you know the scriptures, but you don't. Because if you had Moses and the prophets, you believe me. If you will not be faithful with the word of God that you have, you're not going to be faithful with the word of God that you don't have. When we teach a discipleship class, one of the lessons is on the will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? You be faithful where you are doing what God has set before you no matter how insignificant it may seem you be faithful where you are because if you're not you're not going to the next step you got to get a hold of where you are Sometimes we'll have someone say, Pastor, you don't, you don't use me very much on the worker schedule. Well, you've got to be here. Amen? Well, I'm here every Sunday. Well, Thursday night's important too. Amen? Uh, it's important to be faithful in the little things. You only have today. Jesus was saying, listen to Moses today. And eternity will be taken care of. Amen. Now we've got just a few more verses in chapter 17. Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves if thy brother trespass against thee. Rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day turn again to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto him, Lord, increase our faith. I think that's a good response, don't you? You say, I would doubt the integrity of someone who would do the same thing seven times in one day and tell me they were sorry and that they repented seven times in one day. 
could I ask you a question? Has there been a day when you asked God seven times to forgive you for seven different sins? In fact, seven sins in a 24-hour period would probably be pretty good now, wouldn't it? You see, forgiveness is not based on you, it's based on God. And the disciples' plea is the one that we ought to give, Lord, increase our faith. And I wish you could preach a whole sermon on this last few verses, but we've only got about three minutes. And so you'll need to read the passage and let the Holy Spirit preach to you on these verses here. But what it simply says is Jesus said, you don't need a lot of faith. If you just had a grain of mustard seed, you got enough faith. Faith is not the problem. Here's the problem. Look what it says here, verse 10, I believe it is. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. You see, this, this entire um, set of teachings was all connected. It was basically one large sermon that started in the house of the Pharisees and then went outside to a combined group of the publicans and sinners and the Pharisees and finally ended up with all these people there and Jesus instructing his disciples and he said here's the problem is if you had a servant and he did those things which a servant was supposed to do would you say thank you well my mother always taught me to say thank you well that's not the way they lived just like we would let the little sheep die I don't think we'd let the $100 bill go unfound. But we wouldn't endanger 99 sheep to find that last one. So this isn't the way we think. This is the way God thinks. When we've done that which we're supposed to do, what have we accomplished? The Bible says the heart of the man that has faith says we are unprofitable servants we've done that which is our duty to do but I'm supposed to feel good about myself no you're supposed to feel good about God stop worrying about yourself you are the problem we didn't get too many amens on that last one But isn't that the truth? We were the lost. Aren't you glad he went looking for that 99, that 100th sheep? Amen? Aren't you glad that God was willing to spend the effort to find the lost coin and invite the lost sons back into the home? But when they came into the home... It was under the Father's direction, not under theirs. Amen? And if you're saved today, 
guess what? You're supposed to live the way you got saved. The problem is we get over that. We get a little touch of Phariseeitis, I guess we could call it, where we start thinking that somehow what we are accomplishing is being a blessing to God. No. We're just being faithful in those little things. We've just done our duty. If anything special is going to happen, we've got to surrender ourselves to Him. Again, how much do we give up to serve the Lord? Everything. And He'll take our nothing and make something out of it. All of these things Jesus taught so he could drive this point home to his disciples. They said, increase our faith. Jesus said, you don't need increased faith. You got faith. Faith cometh by and hearing by the word of God. He said, you got to have the application. You got to have what faith produces. And faith produces works. But no matter how much works your faith produce, is it enough? Because it's he that saves us, not your works. And all God's people say. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to look at ourselves in the mirror of your word as you would have us to see ourselves. And Lord, that we would not fall prey to the false humility, to the browbeating of ourselves, but that we would understand truly and honestly that we have nothing with which we can please you. But when we give it all, you change us. And so, Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts and lives that we may be your servants, that we may learn from these teachings of Jesus. In your name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed, and if you need to slip out...